Ladies and gentlemen and Corner Kick fans, welcome to a special midweek grab bag edition of Corner Kick. Thank you all for tuning in at this irregular time. I'm Nathan Strauss, joined as always by Caleb Rhodes. Hello. And Nick Vinden. What is going on, Corner Kick fam? So, a bit of a mixed bag today, uh, as I mentioned. There have been a lot of weird things going on in soccer. We had snowstorms canceling games. We have COVID shutting down academies and forcing Premier League matches to get postponed. Why don't we start with what's been going on in terms of the Premier League and COVID and specifically Aston Villa. Nick, do you want to take us away with that? Yeah, sure. So obviously last week in the Friday FA Cup game between Liverpool and Aston Villa, we saw that Villa had to field what was essentially a U18s side. The average age of the team was about you know, 17 and 100 or so days. And <laughs> there's that amazing quote from the Aston Villa uh, U23 manager saying that most of these players were dropped off by their parents for, you know, their senior debuts against the defending champions of the Premier League. That has continued into this week. It seems as though Aston Villa will not be able to field an 11 for their game against Everton. And out of an abundance of caution, their game against Tottenham was postponed on Wednesday. That game was replaced by Spurs versus Fulham, which we'll come on to. But now their Saturday or no, now their Sunday game against Everton has been postponed as well. So this is another Premier League team falling victim to COVID after we saw Fulham a few weeks ago. And obviously there was the big expose surrounding Newcastle and the fact that players like Alan St. Maximen and a lot of their squad and staff are still feeling the lingering effects of the virus entering their training camp months after that outbreak was first reported. So it's kind of a really scary time in the Premier League as we're seeing cases on the rise in London and soccer coming under more scrutiny from members of parliament in the UK and potentially, you know, the captains of each Premier League club and the managers of each Premier League club were supposedly set to meet today to discuss how to further tighten coronavirus procedures in the Premier League. In a in a weird way, I think this season is more likely to get canceled than like last season was, which was able to resume. And I think that unless like we know relatively soon whether they actually are going to carry out the Euros this summer, which of course will, you know, create a pressure for the leagues to finish, it puts massive pressure on the FA, et cetera, et cetera to sort of force through as many games as possible, despite the fact, as we talked about on the show, like several times in the past few months, that increasingly as COVID is reaching like a global peak right now, more and more clubs are going to be unable to actually field teams. And we've seen that in the past few weeks where not only Aston Villa, but Fulham, as you mentioned, and also Manchester City have all had several players missing due to the virus. And it certainly seems like this is not just limited to the Premier League either. Clearly, it's happening all over American sports right now, where it looks like the NBA is having some real trouble right now in terms of 
getting games underway. UEFA came out today and announced their ticketing plan for the Euros, which included fans being able to get a full refund um, if games were to be canceled, which is an alarming amount of foresight for UEFA because I don't typically think of them as the type of um, corporate entity that really thinks about fans and whatnot. So that signals to me that I think there's a, a high likelihood that the Euros don't end up getting played on time, especially as vaccine rollout continues to go perhaps slower than expected across Europe. So maybe less than encouraging signs. I think the, oddly enough, the NFL has set a precedent in terms of sports leagues resuming in that they just kind of plow through it regardless of any competitive advantage that might be skewed towards one team or another team due to any sort of coronavirus concerns. And I, I think we, we saw the first instance of that this week when Fulham were kind of <laughs> kind of replaced Aston Villa uh, in a Royal Rumble style fashion, <laughs> uh, like 24 hours before the game was set to be played. And Jose Mourinho was was complaining about the fact that, you know, he didn't have adequate time to prepare for the game. Scott Parker was also not especially favorable towards the scheduling shift. But however, I, I think like Caleb said, we're just going to see the FA try to cram as much of these fixtures and the fixture in like this already cramped fixture period into the next couple of months just to ensure that they get as much revenue and as much scheduling plowed through by the time we hit the euros eventually yeah but my point is also that like and and this kind of follows up like because of that it makes the whole concept of this league much more suspect like i think we had a discussion last spring about like oh when liverpool eventually win like is there going to be a question mark i think we decided no but this season i think because of stuff like this there are going to be a lot more question marks because it really does change the competitive nature of the league when you're substituting you know, opponents on the fly in a professional sports league. And we've seen this year with the table that it's like weirdly close and there are just weird results all over the place. And so the FA has a big decision, both in terms of like the product they're putting out and the health and safety of their players. And I think a lot of the incentives right now are aligned towards both a worse product and worse safety. I mean, clearly this didn't happen yesterday, but I think there is definitely a chance that, you know, if teams are substituted, if games, you know, are swapped around, we go back to a scenario that we were seeing at the beginning of the season where there is a ton of like lopsided 3-0, 4-0, 6-2, 6-1 looking results just because teams aren't prepared for the challenge that they might have that, that might come as a shock to them on the day. Yeah. And I also think that, you know, the financial implications of shutting down again would be incredibly severe because right now we're starting to see the first knock-on effects of the shutdown last spring where, you know, championship teams like Derby County have massive cash flow problems and haven't been able to pay their players in over a month. They're being forced to sell off their academy talent in order to get enough, you know, uh, liquidity to be able to pay their wages and, you know, you might expect something like that to occur maybe in League One or League Two, but the fact that it's happening in the championship means that it's possible that the implications for Premier League clubs that don't have the security or maybe even the ability to take out a loan from the Bank of England, like both Arsenal and Spurs have done, or those who have the backing of a group like FSG. Yeah, I was ready to go to the Sheiks first. Yeah, I, was, I could have, but I mean, I figured it was a—it uh, was so obvious that I left it out, but. 
it could be the, the financial ramifications could be really severe as well. And so I don't think by any means the FA's um, motives are pure and uh, focused on the, the sporting element, which is another thing that we talked about last spring. Yeah, a bad time to get relegated for sure. Looking at you, uh, Chef United. <laughs> <laughs> Do we want to talk briefly about the Spurs-Fulham results? Yeah, absolutely. I thought this was the uh, this was Scott Parker versus the bus Parker. <laughs> um, <laughs> Nick's had that uh, written down on a note on his phone yeah, for like forty eight <laughs> hours. <laughs> you guys are not wrong. I thought of that this morning. <laughs> I've been waiting to unleash that on you guys. <laughs> oh my God. But, sorry, but this continue. was another no, no, no. This was another example of. Spurs scoring a relatively early goal. You know, they dominated possession early. And then I thought they only had one or two more clear-cut chances in the game before Fulham equalized uh, through Cavalero. If you're Mourinho and you're, you're going off of, like, the momentum of that 5-0 FA Cup, or, yeah, the 5-0 FA Cup winning against Marine, obviously it's Marine. He's coming off of that game with Deli Ali having a hat-trick of assists and Gareth Bale on the bench. And when you need a goal or when you need to extend the lead because Spurs haven't kept a clean sheet in over a month, I would expect Mourinho to dive into that well and give more minutes to Ali, give more minutes to Bale, give more minutes to these game changers. And yet he's sticking to his system. And the only real offensive substitution we saw was Carlos Vinicius. You know, we were so high on this Tottenham team just a few months ago, but I think we're starting to see Mourinho start to get in his own way a little bit with this Tottenham team. Yeah, and here's an example of, of their struggles. Do you guys know off the top of your head who their their most prolific shot taker is aside from Harry Kane or from Minson? Reguillon. Thank you. Exactly. Um, and when you look at their, their team passing statistics, they're actually more on par with teams like West Ham, Sheffield, and Crystal Palace than teams like Leicester, United, or Chelsea. They're 13th in the league in terms of accurate passes per match, which pretty much reinforces what we know about them. They're a counterattacking team. But the lack of alternative options aside from the front two of Kane and Son means that when those two aren't firing or aren't firing enough, because obviously Kane got that goal, then they're going to come up short. And credit to Fulham for, you know, drawing an opponent that, first of all, they only had one day to to prepare for. Um, But second of all, looked like they were going to be comfortable with that one nothing lead in Classic Mourinho style. But they've definitely cooled off a little bit. And it sort of surprises me that we haven't seen a move from uh, Jose Mourinho to bring in a different sort of attacking threat. Because clearly Ndombele and Sissoko aren't what he's looking for or can't produce as consistency, consistently well, clearly they as need he'd like. an, an attacking midfielder. Yes, obviously. <laughs> facilitate the play between Son and Kane and Ndombele can sit a bit deeper and do his more natural job. And I think, you know, after on the back of that really good Deli Ali performance and Mourinho saying in the media following that result that Deli might get more minutes in the Premier League, he totally backtracked on that when we didn't see him at all. So if it's not going to be Deli, then maybe it's someone like Marcel Sabitzer in the transfer window. But we haven't seen that. That move seems to be like seems seems to have stalled a little bit, uh, according to Fabrizio Romano. So I don't know what the solution is for this Jose team, because right now I think they're in danger of not making the top four at present. Caleb. Yeah, it's it's just weird. Like 
Mourinho kind of gets in his own head a little too much sometimes, which results in him showing, for instance, like way too much respect for this Fulham team. Like there's no reason he needed to start Hoiberg, Winks, Sissoko, and Ndombele and only have two real attackers. And as you guys mentioned, it makes even less sense that he didn't even make all three subs and he left Lucas Mora, Deli Ali, and Gareth Bale all on the bench. Yeah, I, I think the Deli Ali story is very interesting because I think I read somewhere and I forget exactly where that it looked like he was going to go to PSG, but then Mourinho decided that he didn't want to give him to PSG, not because he necessarily saw a place for him in his plans, but because he's worried that some players are going to get COVID and he wanted to have like a backup in the event of that happening. It's just weird to just not call on him as a resource anyway, once you're still keeping him. And so I think Mourinho is playing right now a little too much like you know, like the second half of a Chelsea season where they're on the way to winning the league, right? Where they're already in first place by a few points and they just decide to grind out one nil wins. He's kind of doing that, except he's in sixth place right now. Exactly. And you have to think about it too, from a management perspective, Ali is probably their most saleable asset in terms of the transfer market and bringing up funds. And his value has dropped from over 80 million a year ago to 36 million now. It seems surprising that the message hasn't come from on high to either let him go um, or start playing him more. Because right now, he's basically doing the same thing that Mesut Ozil is at Arsenal, although maybe to a lesser extent. Um, and, you know, eating up wages and not really getting the minutes, which is surprising. I mean, I think I think Mourinho has just tamed Daniel Levy. <laughs> right? Like, he's the first first person in like the past decade to like actually get his way and do whatever he wants with this team. And Daniel is just kind of like, sure. Well, we saw, not to bring this way back to no, Tottenham say, all or nothing. It. Yeah, exactly. We That's saw what I'm saying. It, where it's like Daniel Levy was like, uh, there's two managers who I consider to be like the greatest managers currently in the world. And one of them is Mourinho. So I think it's one of those things where it's like Man City are, feel like they're so privileged to have Guardiola. I think Levy feels like he's so privileged to have Mourinho and he's fully bought in to the Mourinho experience. I'm not sure how many more of these draws that really should be wins. Like, listen, like they paid a lot of money for the stadium and they haven't won on that ground a whole lot that Mourinho needs to really start establishing, at least at home, uh, a semblance of dominance or else I think the chairman of Spurs might get a little impatient. I know I certainly would if I wasn't, you know, seeing a return on investment on the stadium and, and rolling up to the yeah. ground, see us, you know, get, get pegged back uh, by Fulham. Absolutely. And I mean, of course, they do have the Carabao Cup final coming up in late April against Man City. And it seems like that's they, the kind of trophy that Mourinho would exactly. love to win. Um, I think they would classic that Mourinho style. Yeah, I, it would not surprise me either, especially if City make it far in the Champions League. Do we want to do FA Cup now while we're still on the topic of England before we cross the channel? Yeah, absolutely. I, I would love to talk about some of these FA Cup stories that we saw briefly. Because I think these are, you know, in a time in which it is like a very trying experience to like get on your phone and look at any sort of news to see the positive impact of stories like Marine in the FA Cup and obviously the results of the Crawley-Leeds game. These are the things that, you know, make you want to get out of your bed and be a soccer fan, in my opinion. Absolutely. And I mean, we can start off by talking about the biggest ever uh, or a historical matchup between Marine AFC and Spurs 
it is the, the those two teams met having been separated by the greatest distance in FA Cup um, history in terms of league tables. Marine, of course, in the eighth tier, they were playing amongst what looked like a row of townhouses and gardens. It was definitely a surreal experience, Nick. I know you've been you've been itching to talk about this. So this was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen when it comes to sports. Can you imagine? Like these, to put it in perspective, like these players for Marine are you know, average everyday people, like they're postmen, they're garbage collectors, they're, they work office jobs, and they just so happen to play soccer on the side. So they won this game. Not, not actually, but no, no, no. I mean, like they, they won, they won this game from the moment that this tie was made. Who would have thought that they would ever see any sort of revenue or any type of audience of this size in their entire history. Obviously, there was that famous story of once they qualified for the third round of the FA Cup, their goalkeeper uh, went in, in his uniform straight to the shops to buy beer for the team. So Budweiser for this game installed a beer fridge in their changing room, organized a thing where you could buy virtual tickets to the match since Liverpool got moved back into tier three of COVID lockdown. And they have received enough donations now to set the club up for the next 20 years of its existence off the back of this game. And obviously, we saw Mourinho and Spurs be extremely generous with their donations. Mourinho bought several tickets into Marines' raffle, uh, their charity raffle. We saw them give, you know, customized jerseys to the Marine players. So this was something where it's like, you want to talk about the magic of the FA Cup. This was one of those moments. And they almost scored. Yeah, and they almost scored. They hit the bar. Caleb, anything to add? Not especially. I mean, like, yeah, it was it was a feel good story. I, at times, I thought some of the Spurs players were a little dickish. By which <laughs> I just mean Carlos Vinicius, who I, I don't doubt the Mbappe celebration in like yeah, a back garden. Yeah, which is just like sad for so many reasons because he's like the backup striker at Spurs. He's older than Kylian Mbappe. He's playing an eighth division team in England. He's right? literally he's literally playing with people watching through their fences. Yeah, exactly. Like honestly, like I loved all of the like Twitter pictures from this, where people are like, oh, I woke up this morning and I saw like Gareth Bale, or the fact that uh, Spurs they changed in like a restaurant next door. Yeah, and I feel like you know you should act like you've been there before, which is frankly what I thought Liverpool's players did going up against the Villa U18s. I mean, there's no need to celebrate that excessively. And it's it's even worse because Vinicius was scoring goals with an XG of one. Like, literally, these were tap-ins on the line. It's not as if he was scoring bangers. Um, that third his, goal was a banger. Yeah, but, like, the, the one that he celebrated, right, it was literally, like, he miscontrolled it, and then somehow it was still there, and then he was able to tap it in. Like, it wasn't even a good goal, right? Like, it was, it was actually a bad goal. It was a goal you wouldn't score against a third-division team because it wouldn't... you would, the goalkeeper would be on top of it so it, yeah he he is actually the only player who i think disgraced himself <laughs> like a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so that's, that's really the magic of the fa cup right there Vinny. look no further look no further budweiser that's your new oh, uh your new element other things happening in the fa cup though wouldn't be a proper fa cup third round without a major upset, and that's what we saw as League Two promotion contenders Crawley absolutely demolished Marcelo Bielsa's leads in what was a pretty humbling moment for 
the Argentine. Where do we even start with this game? Because it's not as if they somehow fluked their way into a goal and then sat back. They really took leads to task, you know, over the course of a full 90 minutes. No, and I think the trouble with this is that you're starting to see some of the Bielsa fatigue start to creep into this Leeds team. Obviously, uh, we know the scary statistic that most of Bielsa's sides in his historical tenure as manager of several different clubs, they accrue most of their points at the beginning of the season. And then they they do a, a huge swan dive down into the bottom half of the table and they don't collect many points uh, after the turn of the year. And I think we're kind of starting to see that with Leeds where it just looks like a lot of these players are exhausted. I can imagine like the murder ball training sessions are looking a lot more leggy at the Leeds training grounds. And I also think you kind of saw the extent of like what Bielsa can do with this current Leeds squad. You know, there was there was a lot of first teamers in this team, but there was a lot of players who have either yet to make their Premier League debuts or have not featured as much in the Premier League. And I think you kind of saw that inexperience on display when it comes to the Bielsa system as well. So this was one for his detractors in England who kind of say like, why doesn't he alter his style at all? Blah, 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 blah. I certainly think this was a victory for all of those people. I mean, it's it's Leeds are just the strangest team because they have scored in like the Premier League at least the same amount of goals as Tottenham, 30. They've only won one fewer game than Tottenham in the Premier League, and yet they've conceded 17 more goals than Spurs in that time period. And to be fair, Spurs have a really good defense, but it's just they're all over the place. Honestly, this result makes a lot of sense to me, but I agree, Nick. It's like a major warning sign for what's going to happen in the next you know, 21 games, considering we're not even halfway through the Premier League season. Yeah, and I mean, I don't think we discussed this officially in an episode, but remember a few weeks ago when Leeds um, sort of openly flamed Karen Kearney, a journalist, for her take that that basically said what Nick just said about how Leeds typically end up, or Bielsa sides typically end up dropping a lot of points due to fatigue issues at the end of seasons. And this result certainly um, added on to the many reasons why I think that Leeds' official um, response to that was unnecessary and probably harmful, but perhaps that's left for you know another episode. Yeah, I think we could probably leave that whole topic by the wayside and it was obviously disgusting what that Leeds official account did but I also think that that pundit was right in oh, that, of course you know, Leeds were able to get a lot of rest due to the the pause in the championship season last year and they were able to get a lot more energy back in those legs to make a push to make that you know final push for the Premier League at full tilt and not you know being super drained and I think we're starting to see the super drained aspect of the Bielsa team start to creep into this Leeds style of play I think that about wraps it up in terms of what we saw in the UK this weekend. It's about time that we shift our attention to one of the weirder weeks in Spanish soccer. We have the weird Spanish Super Cup that never was from this past summer going on in two different semifinals with a final coming up this weekend. You have a blizzard that canceled games and stranded Real Madrid on the runway for over three hours the other day. Why don't we start with Barca versus Sociedad in one of the Super Cup semifinals. Caleb, the resident La Liga expert, what do you make of this game? What do you make of the bizarre penalty shootout as well? You know, in, in England, you know, the community shield is kind of like a joke 
And I would say that the Super Copa de España is also kind of a joke to everyone except like the Spanish Football Association, which is obsessed with making it a legitimate trophy. And so you have to remember this is this is a very new format. Normally it isn't like a tournament style two game affair, but literally they never played the Copa del Rey final from last year. So it's like unclear which of Sociedad and Bilbao should have been in the Supercopa. And so they just decided to put, you know, the first and second place La Liga teams, Barca and Madrid from last year in it as well. I think the other important thing to note is that last season La Liga officials sold this game to Saudi Arabia to cash that Middle Eastern check. And they weren't able to do that this time around due to COVID. So I'm sure that, you know, they're kind of scratching their heads as to why they were even having this tournament at the same time. They weren't able to cash in on that sweet, sweet Middle Eastern money. So there's, there's a lot of strangeness. But, but on to the, the actual result of Sociedad or La Real, because as the commentator yesterday noted, Sociedad just means society. And that's just a weird thing to just call a team. Um, <laughs> Uh, so La Real versus Barcelona. I just thought of something. I'm sorry to interrupt again. Yeah. But what if that Spanish team, uh, Flat Earth FC, went up against Real Society? <laughs> that would be the most like meta internet game of all time, I feel. This game, obviously Barcelona were without Messi, but Lenglet and Araujo were both back. Um, we decided to rest Serginho Dest because he clearly needed it. And so we played uh, Ningueza a little bit out of position on the wing. But it gave an opportunity, I thought, for Griezmann and Dembele to kind of take more responsibility. And through most of the game, honestly, it, it worked pretty well. I thought Griezmann looked alive. And as I mentioned to you guys over text, Dembele versus Nacho Monreal is just a horrible mismatch because Dembele had like six dribbles against him and just knocked the ball by him. But in a weird way, this was actually a very good like morale-raising victory. Messi was very noticeably like kind of coaching people as we got prepared for extra time because it was tied 1-1 after regular time. And I think especially in, and, and <laughs> you can talk a little more about the penalty shootout, which La Real missed, what, the first three, the first two? First three. Um, two of them were really good saves from Ter Stegen and one, I think, just hit the post. The big story from this game, honestly, is the fact that Ricky Puig, who, of course, has been frozen out of the team for large parts of the season, came off the bench at the beginning of extra time in place of Pedri, had a good 30-minute shift. And then Komen said that he only had the first four uh, penalty takers like marked out, and he asked who wanted to take the fifth one. And Puig like immediately raised his hand and of course scored the winning penalty. And so I think despite the sort of narrow win and the weird penalty shootout, which I think Nathan, you mentioned to me yesterday, we haven't had one in like a cup tournament since like the nine was in the end, actually a very, very good win. And I think we can carry it forward to Bilbao. I, I think it's a good win. I think we'll see what happens with the lineup on Sunday. Cause obviously you had a, a decently rotated team, you know, you had Mingueza playing sort of right back slash right center back at times. It should be a winnable game coming up at the weekend. I think it would behoove Komen well to treat it seriously. But the penalty shootout was really weird, in part because I don't know if I've ever seen a team miss three straight penalties in a penalty shootout before. The fact that they brought on John um, Bautista in the 120th minute oh, because he's allegedly a penalty specialist only for him... <laughs> Yeah, they, might have, they might as well have brought on Dave Batista. 
Yeah, only for him to miss the penalty. That's sort of like the opposite of what happened when um, the oh, Netherlands brought in Costa Rica. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. They brought in Tim Krul, um, you know, to to save penalties, and it worked. One of I hate Fingal just because it was United Association, but one of the dopest substitutions oh, 100%. of all time. 100%. That's such a power move. And like the fact that it worked meant that Van Gaal got a lot of praise for it. And obviously when a substitution like that doesn't work, it makes you look pretty dumb. Um, and At the same I think I'm though the fact that they had to do that against like Costa Rica. <laughs> yo, yo, Joel Campbell. Joel Campbell World Cup. No, because that was the, that was the World Cup where it was Costa Rica, England, Uruguay, and Italy, I think in the same group. Oh, yeah. And uh, then those, those are wild times, wild times indeed. But now Costa Rica totally, are they even a country anymore? They totally dropped off the map. <laughs> Tim Cruel took away their title of nation state <laughs> with those saints. Costa, Costa Rica woke up the following day to see an envoy of Dutch ships <laughs> on the horizon. Exactly. Yeah. Costa Rica looking real quiet lately. Um, but it was a really weird, it was a really weird penalty shootout. I think this Barcelona team, and I mentioned this yesterday in our text exchange, they've been on a good run of form recently. And I think Caleb was right to point out that I think in the past few years, this team has not done well when it comes to facing up against adversity. While it was nice to see Messi engage in this game from the sidelines, coaching up his teammates. I also think that their one blowout loss away from PSG to going back to like the same super negative energy, no real prospects on the horizon. I don't know. I think there, there, there is a semblance that this team is sort of hanging on by a thread, but hopefully Kuman can stick to his guns, uh, really commit to the four, three, three, which with Pedri in the midfield, which I think makes this team look way more balanced. I think Pedri has been an absolute revelation this season, somewhat underrated as well. All we can do is is try to win. So I don't fault us for for winning and grinding out results. I do think we have started to play. It's, I don't know if it's quite a four three three, but it's a little less of a four two three one recently. That has seen Pedri playing more of a center midfielder rather than a cam. And I think that's actually, you know, it's something we've called for all year, and it's been like huge for the performance of the team. In particular, it's allowed De Jong to show some of his offensive capabilities much better. And also, I think it opens up Komen to the possibility of giving Puig more minutes because he is more of a center midfielder than a cam. And I think with Alenia gone, Puig is like the only kind of like different sort of youth midfielder we have. And so I expect that he will get more minutes going forward. And my like sneaky hot take is I think he could start the final this weekend Mm. that would certainly be a bold choice and it would sort of validate what you were saying earlier about his confidence um in that 30 minute cameo it also wouldn't surprise me if we end up seeing Busquets dropped um into a center back role in the same way Mascherano was towards the latter stages of his Barcelona career especially given the center back fitness crisis and how good De Jong has looked going forward he's already equaled his uh, number of goals scored in his entire, you know, almost 100 games with Ajax in 30 fewer games for Barca. That's the other thing, right, is how long can this defense continue to put in this type of performance? And I think what's important to note is that Trish Dagan yesterday had probably one of his greatest games in a Barcelona shirt. And I think you can't expect him to, even though he is, in my opinion, you know, one of the three best goalkeepers in the world. I don't know how long this defense can continue to hold out this season. Speaking of holding out, 
a team who did hold out for a win today. Athletic Club Bilbao beats Real Madrid 2-1 to claim the second spot in the final this weekend. It was a horrible 90 minutes for that for Lucas Vazquez at right back, who somehow managed to stay on the pitch despite Zidane going to his bench four times. And uh, it was Raul Garcia's day. Two goals, including a penalty and a, a very nice finish in the 18th minute off of a good through ball from Danny Garcia, a really classy dummy from Inaki Williams. And uh, Madrid stumble. It's been an awful week for Real Madrid. Let's just put it this way. They have to travel for that snow game, which ended up in a nil-nil. Um, horrible performance from Madrid in that game as well. Croix uh, came out and was super critical of the team. We're starting to see that Eden Hazard might be at the end of his rope in Real Madrid jersey because I can't remember a single good performance that he's put in since he's joined Real Madrid. He looks so devoid of confidence. He finally is seeming seems to be, you know, fit at least to play these games, but he's not having any impact at all. In fact, he had no take-ons in this game whatsoever, zero which was a hallmark of his play at Chelsea and made him one of the most electrifying players in the world. I also think that this team absolutely lacks any sort of dynamism, any sort of youth in midfield to progress the ball up the pitch. Kroos uh, has you know, suddenly turned into like Nemanja Matic, like he can't run at all. Uh, Luka Modric, obviously we know he's sort of aging out of his prime Real Madrid days. I don't know what the future of this team holds, and this is a really bad place for Real Madrid to be in the middle of the season. I didn't realize how bad Hazard had been, but he has three goals and three assists in his 38 first-team appearances for Madrid, um, which is just shocking considering the price tag and considering how consistent he was at Chelsea. I don't really know what it is about Real Madrid, but... It certainly seems like he's headed more towards Gareth Bale's path and less towards Cristiano Ronaldo's. I don't path. even think I don't even think you compare him to Gareth Bale. Gareth Bale at least had you know several seasons of scoring fifteen plus goals for the team. He he contributed way more than I think Eden Hazard's ever going to do at Real Madrid. I think we're we're looking at you know a caca situation or even worse. Madrid are just terrible right now. I think we should you know this game at the same time could have gone a little differently. I mean, like, both goals were Lucas Vazquez errors, and Marco Asensio hit the post twice in this game. Madrid put up 21 shots, but only six were on target. And I think that's the issue right now is, honestly, they look a little bit like Barcelona from, like, a month ago, where we were putting up a lot of shots, but we're lacking, like, any clinical edge. And I think the issue, though, is that I think Barcelona at least have a few people off the bench that can offer something. And I look at the Madrid bench right now, and it is pretty bleak. Like you have, you know, a Vinicius who's pretty out of form. And then clearly Zidane doesn't trust any of the sort of more dynamic midfield players he could call upon, like Odegaard or Isco. And they had to give up on the Luka Jovic project. They've just reloaned him back to Eintracht Frankfurt. And so their only backup striker now is Mariano, who only scores when he's a substitute in big games. And I think that is sort of like the real worrying thing for Madrid because they've beaten, you know, Barcelona, they've beaten Atletico Madrid, they've beaten Sevilla, they've beaten Inter Milan, but they've lost teams like Cadiz, Alaves, Valencia, and now Bilbao. So you could call this a big game, but now the trend is like, can Real Madrid even show up 
for these big occasions anymore that they've done throughout the season. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I sort of think that the Madrid hierarchy gambled on trying to find the next Neymar when they went out and signed Rodrigo and signed Vinicius and also Rainier, who's on loan at um, Dortmund, but hasn't gotten any minutes for them yet, I believe. And, you know, that's 160 million in transfer fees for players who are totally unproven, who have, you know, aside from brief spurts like um, Vinicius is in the Champions League run um, a few years ago, been pretty dire. I think Madrid are fortunate in that they have some assets who they can sell. You know, players like Isco, who can, you know, fetch a decent decent sum. I know he's been rumored to be linked with Everton. Um, but then you look at the fact that they have a bunch of players who are the wrong side of 30 or soon to be the wrong side of 30. You know, Kreuz is 31. He's not going anywhere. Luka Modric is allegedly working on a contract extension, but, you know, he's 35. Well, also, don't don't underplay the fact that they still haven't agreed an extension with Sergio Ramos, who could also leave at the end of the year. And it's something we've talked about a lot is that he, at times, seems like the only thing that holds this team together at all. And if he leaves, I worry that the club honestly could like implode. So I think Ramos has one foot out the door, and that is a really worrying thing if you're Madrid. Because if they lose leadership, that's like probably the last you know big intangible thing that they have left of this team, and that I think is too a step too big for them to lose. I think it's totally possible that they might just collapse. But speaking of collapse and teams that have had a bad week, Bayern Munich on Friday they lose three two to Mönchengladbach, blowing a two nil lead in a very un-Bayern-like performance. And then yesterday, Bayern uh, bow out of the DFL Pokal to Holstein Kiel, who are a Bundesliga two-side um, on penalties. Pretty bad week, all in all. The Holstein killers, bra bra. <laughs> Nothing? All right, cool. Uh, yeah, I mean, this was always bound to happen, right? Bayern were always going to have that moment where they regress a little bit. I think we're starting to see that now. I think we're also starting to see that they don't have, you know, as many options off the bench to really rotate as we thought. Maybe certain players like Leroy Sané, even though he scored a nice free kick, uh, he had an awful performance against Holstein Kiel. He really hasn't settled in at Bayern yet. Uh, I think there's a couple players like Serge Gnabry who's dropped off in form. Yeah, I just think this team, like Liverpool at the moment, there's so much promise when it comes to the depth that they have. I just think that they're in a bad spell of form at the minute. Yeah, they were always kind of bound to start losing their form a little bit. But it is honestly like they played a pretty strong lineup against Holstein Kiel. Like I know they they rotated like Lewandowski wasn't involved, but their offense still had Sané, Muller, Nabry, who are all, I think, starters in, in a best 11. Kimmich, who's one of the best players in the world. Their defense was pretty much complete other than Saar at right back. And they still had Neuer in goal. Like, frankly, the only player who looked a, kind of out of place, perhaps, is Musiala, um, the young Englishman, who's actually scored some important goals for them this year. They, they've kind of relied on a bit of just, like, overwhelming other teams. And I think, at, the, at least at the beginning of this year, we were just like, oh, my God, how can this team not win, like, 5-0 every game? They've just kind of lost it a little bit, which intriguingly kind of, like, opens up the question of, like, who is like the dominant team in Europe right now? Um, and I don't 
fully have an answer to it yet. But right now, I, I don't think Bayern seem necessarily set on like easily reclaiming the Champions League like I thought they would. Sneaky, I think City look like the best place team in, in Europe right now. Uh, so dude, I knew you were going to say that because I was yeah. also I, I also think that that's true because I think defense is going to be so important in the era of as we continue down this path of no fans in the stadium. And Bayern have already conceded 24 goals in the Bundesliga, which is a crazy amount. It is the most in the top four in the division. RB Leipzig have the best defense in the division with 12. And they're slowly crazy. So I think if you're Hansi Flick, you need to find a way to... And I think we praise him for being a very expansive coach. I think in the second half of the season, he needs to find a way to rein that in a little bit and be a little bit more pragmatic. I also just think that this Bayern team, this Bayern team, can't go on conceding this many goals, especially to second division teams. Yeah, and it's definitely a fluke result because I mean, at the end of the day, losing on penalties is is losing on penalties, but not what you'd expect. They do still have the lead in the Bundesliga, but again, we as we've said, the Bundesliga looks like the league that's going to have the best eventual title race with four teams legitimately in with a shout right now. With you think you know, it's be the Premier League, I'm not sure. I feel like the Premier League, ha- there's more potential for, for a team like Liverpool or City to run away with it, especially given City's game in hand. In a rarity for the Bundesliga, you know, we might see a, a really tight title race. But speaking of title races, I think we should wrap up our show today by talking about probably, or not even probably, just straight up the biggest match of the year in the Premier League so far. It is the rekindling of an old rivalry. It's Liverpool versus Man United. These teams are in first and second right now, but not the way any of us would have predicted at the start of the season. United on 36 points, Liverpool on 33. It'll be at Anfield at 11.30 on Sunday morning Eastern. Nick, I know you have been uh, quaking in your boots a little bit at the prospect of this match. I want Caleb to go first. All right, Caleb, I know that... uh, (laughs) (laughs) Caleb, why don't you take us away? What should we expect from this game? Who do you see coming out on top and... Are you a little bit surprised at the stakes of this match? Okay, here's the thing. Manchester United have no business being top of the Premier League right now. And yet they are. After 17 games, they've won more games than any other team in the league with 11 out of 17. They have a fairly prolific offense and a, you know, average defense. But point is, they just I don't I don't even I can't even comprehend Man United's position. They are playing a Liverpool team that is objectively better, but in worse form, which means it's huge for Liverpool, not only that they're facing their rivals, but also that they're now trailing in a title race in a season where it looked like they might be able to just kind of like eke out wins better than other teams that are struggling. But they also need to essentially win against Manchester United in order to prove that Man U are the frauds that we think they are. And weirdly enough, if they lose, it validates Manchester United in a way that I think truly could carry them into like legitimate title contender form. Because I think Man United are not this good. I think it's everyone else is not playing up to their level. But I think the pressure is significantly more on Liverpool than it is on Manchester United, which definitely gives the psychological game like points to uh, the Red Devils. But I'm interested to hear what, what Nick feels. I, I assume he sort of agrees with that analysis, but obviously might feel it sort of more acutely in his person. I absolutely agree with that analysis. I think you're absolutely right. I, I don't think this United team 
has the quality to be anywhere near the top of the Premier League, certainly leading the Premier League table. I also think that they're doing the thing that champions do the best season in, season out, which is grind out results when it looks like they might take a draw away from a game or when it looks like they might take a loss away from the game, they come back and win it. I think they're the team that most consistently grinds out results, which could end up being a good thing for Liverpool and that United don't tend to dominate games. They look to sit back a little bit more and take things on the counter and soak up a bit of pressure, even though their defense isn't especially great. I think Liverpool need a performance similar to that of Leicester City or Wolves, where they just are dominant on the ball. They have plenty of opportunities to get shots away on goal. I think there was an interesting piece in the Athletic this week which looked at why the front three of Liverpool haven't been especially prolific this season, even though Salah leads the golden boot race. They need to really show that they can work as a unit again instead of just one individual pulling the weight every single game, which has been the case this season, either it's Salah scoring, either it's Firmino scoring, or either it's Mane scoring. I think we need one game where they can they can show that they are the, the feared trio that the Premier League used to be so afraid of. I also think that this is a huge game for Thiago. This is the first time we're going to see him playing on the Anfield pitch. So that'll be a huge occasion for him. And I think it's a huge boost that I don't think United actually, even though Bruno is an incredibly technically gifted player, I don't think United have a player like Thiago. Certainly not a player who can counter what Thiago does. But obviously the huge worry is whether or not we're going to see Jordan Henderson at center back again. And that's honestly what gives me the most anxiety. Because I think with, with Henderson not in the midfield, this team loses so much of its dynamism and its will to go forward. Yeah, I think that was the key part of the of that athletic article that you were talking about is how much of the chances for the front three come from or came from the ability of Virgil van Dijk and, you know, another functioning fit first team center back to hold the press together um, from the back and to sort of set a higher line. And obviously, I was pretty surprised to see Henderson start on Friday um, in that cup tie. I was surprised to see Fabinho start in that cup tie as well. It seemed like unnecessary inclusions um, going up against a side with zero Premier League experience. But desperate times call for desperate measures, I suppose. And it seems unlikely that Liverpool are going to be bringing in a center back this window. Apparently, they were offered the chance to sign Socrates on a free from Arsenal, which is interesting for so many reasons. Um, I don't you think know what, you know what we're good with Matt Phillips. Thank yeah, exactly. Much. Exactly. I mean, I, I saw that rumor and I was like, wow, this, this feels wrong for like four reasons. Um, but if I think the big worry is, is defensively for Liverpool, because I think obviously there's enough talent in your front three and even in your, in your midfield as well to counter United. But I worry a little bit about how United attack in waves. They're going to be without Martial who has, I think a thigh injury um, that should be keeping him out or a hamstring injury rather that, that might be keeping him out for the next couple of weeks, but they'll still have, you know, Rashford with Bruno Fernandes in behind. They might start Cavani as well to try and occupy one of the makeshift center backs, probably Fabinho physically. And uh, I think it will really come down to players like Alexander Arnold to break his run of poor form. Um, if Liverpool are to get a result here. And just like Caleb said, I feel like the Premier League desperately needs Liverpool to win this game because if the season were to get cancelled or shut down and United were in the lead, 
I kind of feel like there would be no good option as to whether or not the title would get awarded or not. Dude, I know. That is the thing that I, that I am fearful of the most, is that the season gets called off and that they give United the Premier League title. And I also think that, you know, Caleb hit on something really important, and it's that United, whether or not they deserve it, quote-unquote, they smell blood in the water, and their fans do as well. Like, their fans right now are at the peak of insufferability uh, that we haven't seen since... 2013 i just think that if they're able to break liverpool's unbeaten streak of three and a half years at anfield that is going to give them all the confidence in the world to propel them to that premier league title and i think it's even the fact that we're talking about liverpool losing this streak is evidence of both like the stakes and also the fact that liverpool i think the club the fans everything thinks that it's possible. And I think that's something we have not seen with this Klopp side in like three years, a sense that they don't or aren't totally sure that they are the better team and are going to win. And I think that's disconcerting for a lot of reasons. Do you guys have score predictions for this game? No, I don't. (laughs) I'm I'm literally too anxious to give a score prediction. I'm so nervous for this game. It's like, Imagine like, you know, waking up on a Saturday and you know you have to go take the SATs, but you haven't studied at all. It's like that feeling times 10. Has that happened to you? No. Okay. But I'm just saying. (laughs) 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 I I, I studied for the SATs. Okay. Um, I think think Liverpool are going to win 2-1, but I do think Manchester United score the first one in like the 70th minute and it's just like a nuts you know last quarter of an hour to finish out the game I'm gonna be I'm gonna split the difference between I guess Caleb and and what the betting odds say the Liverpool are pretty heavily favored in the in the odds battle which I think is surprising um but I think this game ends nil nil I think Solskjaer is probably going to end up playing the three at the back which is really, you know, a back five or even a back seven that worked against PSG away. It wouldn't surprise me to see Luke Shaw and Alex Teller start. So I'm predicting it's going to be a little bit more defensive. And perhaps just as Liverpool City has disappointed in the past, this game might end up being another surprising dud um, on the pitch. I think the thing is, though, this game never really disappoints. Like the the intensity and animosity is such where it's like someone needs to come out the winner. And a draw at Anfield is a win for Manchester United. So even if it is a nil-nil and they're scrapping and clawing and they're fouling all over the place and Harry Maguire is like shoving Roberto Firmino into a locker somewhere, then like that's still that's still a win for United. Any point that they take is going to propel them forward. Well, I think that just about wraps it up. It was a pretty weird week in soccer. A lot of different competitions happening simultaneously. Some games being scheduled within 24 hours notice. And it's going to be a crazy weekend as well with a cup final, a rivalry game, and of course, normal Premier League action as well. We'll be back with discussions about all of that at some point next week. But I've been Nathan Strauss. Caleb Rhodes. I've been the bus parker. (laughs) Nick Vinden for you. And we will see you all next time.